This is Los Altos Institute's History of Green Politics in North America course. I'm Stuart Parker, I'm the instructor, and uh, as with all of the courses posted to this archive, uh, the discussion portions of each class have been edited to remove participants who wished to be anonymized. So expect a single coherent lecture followed by a discussion that might have a few uh, choppy bits. Oh, good. Yeah, and we'll get the next episode up and replace the missing one and whatnot. I just got a Ted demoralized uh, for a bit. Um, it, it, it's a demoralizing time in big G. <laughs> politics, maybe. Yeah, I guess it probably didn't. I mean, they, they've achieved something I thought impossible. Um, they've fallen behind the People's Party in the polls. Well, yeah, with with a lot less candidates, probably do they'll probably get less votes, right? But it's possible. I I can't imagine. Anyway, hi, Jonathan. Uh, so yeah, so we so last episode, the episode you haven't heard, Mark, is actually um, pretty uh, pretty relevant to uh, how we know each other. Basically, the extended argument that I made was that the jurisdictions in which proportional representation had become a legit had been legitimized in the eyes of the voters was basically conflated with the electability of the greens because although in in provinces because essentially these pr referenda were turned in the public square into referenda on the question of whether the Greens should enter your legislature. That, that was effectively the only thing that these referenda would change about your legislature other than maybe adjusting some totals. And so many, and of course the fact that all these Greens had been pulled into these proportional representation movements meant that what you were really do, achieving in BC in 2009 and in 2018 is getting 38% of the population to vote for the proposition of the Greens entering their legislature. And we see, um, and we see similar effects that the legitimation of PR in the minds of progressive voters appears to have directly produced um, a massive increase in the party's vote ceiling. While it's true that many progressives voted against PR in BC in 2005, the voter base for proportional representation in 2009 and 2018 was overwhelmingly self-identified progressives going to the polls, going what we knew. We're doing fine, basically. We just need to stir some greens into these legislatures. And uh, in Prince Edward Island, of course, there's both the most dramatic example of three referenda where the vast majority of self-identified progressives voted for PR um, and this increase in the vote ceiling that green candidates experienced in PEI. 
that um, the legitimation of green as a political choice, as a viable political choice, was achieved, even though ironically all these referenda failed. Uh, that um, they produced certain proportional effects. Um, and this I want to link to um, what we see in uh, the post-Nader US Greens and in Canada after Jean Chrétien's 2003 election financing reform. Essentially what had been, ha what um, essentially um, party funding in Canada had traditionally been based on the size of your government subsidy is correlated to the wealth of your donors and the amount that they donate. Uh, in 1993, Mulroney had added in uh, those provisions I talked about two classes ago, where you also started getting reimbursed for your expenses, but your reimbursement rates were where varied widely based on how rich the candidate was in regular society. Um, you know, a store clerk getting reimbursed for their campaigning time at eleven dollars an hour, and a radiologist being reimbursed at four hundred. So. Um, what we see following um, Kretchen's reforms is this correction, where the number of dollars the party gets per year corresponds to the number of votes they get per year, uh, per election. Interestingly, and I, I mentioned that the financial gimmickry of all this was central to Jim Harris's leadership in 04, um, that gimmickry didn't sell with green voters the conscious connection between their, their vote and the party's funding made their votes feel dirty to them. Uh, and so it was, it was quickly retired as a rhetorical point. Nobody wanted to go to the polls figuring that their achievement would be giving somebody they liked $7. So um, this, uh, nevertheless, by proportionalizing party funding, um, giving the Greens the ability to hire staff and have a government-funded office and all these things before they elected any MPs, no doubt was part of this coinciding set of processes of legitimating the Greens in the Anglosphere. That um, in the United States, uh, the Nader campaign had been registered in enough states and had won enough votes in key states that it also began to receive annual funding from the state, which would take seven years to run out. And so again, you don't so much see the Greens building up some kind of grassroots support. The party still has a low ratio of members to voters as it retains up to the present day. But we see all kinds of forces um, from above producing various kinds of legitimacy for the Greens as a choice. But what that doesn't coincide with in any way is movement of the Overton window in the direction of what the Greens are talking about. In many ways, the le legitimacy of the Greens is strangely unconnected either to any level of grassroots mobilization or to any shift in public discourse. 
the Greens become legitimate within the pre-existing discourse. And what that means also is that we see um, green policies tacking very, very rapidly to the mainstream. Um, we see massive policy overhauls in um, every province and in the healthy state green parties um, throughout North America in the early 21st century. We, um, and those policies are associated with um, another development that the Greens are adjacent to, but not in. And that is the embrace of the third way by social democratic parties that were not in power in the 1990s. During the 1990s, pretty much every political party, whatever its stated ideology was, that was in power in elected office in the 90s, enacted the same set of neoliberal reforms. Uh, there's no, there are subtle and superficial differences among the neoliberal reforms that are enacted, whether they be enacted by Mike Harcourt or Ralph Klein. Um, privatization, austerity, deregulation, etc. Um, but third, but social democratic and liberal parties that didn't happen to be in power in the 90s initially were places where some kind of social democratic politics continued. And this shifts really dramatically. Um, we see it with Jack Layton. Uh, you look at the difference between his 2004 campaign and his 2006 campaign. What happens is that the external pressure from the New Democratic parties in Canada that are already third way parties overwhelms any sort of autochthonous or autonomous policy control that Layton has. So, right. So Layton runs on sort of a social democratic ticket in 2004. In 2006, Layton publicly renounces his opposition to the Canada-US free trade agreement, the investor rights deals, all that stuff. And there's a series of renunciations by social democratic parties that although they weren't forced to change their ideology while in power, nevertheless um, have followed along. And so what we see then is an emergent policy consensus in uh, by the middle of the first decade of the 21st century in the places that we're studying. And I think because we see that policy consensus emerge, um, the Greens are in very little position not to join it. It's not as though there are a bunch of available policy positions that various parties are taking. That is the case in Quebec, and we see the Greens in Quebec take a very different turn. But in English-speaking places, what we see is rapid convergence. Now, James Marshall, one of, you know, the few green diaper babies to have run, you know, uh, we're used to these multi-generational political lineages in the NDP and in the Tories. Uh, 
it, um, uh, James Marshall wrote a book, a history of green parties of the world focused on Canada. Uh, he interviewed me for the book at length, um, published the book two years ago, uh, says some very nice things about me in it. And uh, so I feel bad being critical of the book too much. Uh, I think James is a lovely person, but I found the book hugely instructive because there's a single uninterrogated goal that um, the party, that green parties are sort of teleologically proceeding towards according to the book. And that end is professionalization. The term professionalization is never defined at any point in the book. We, but it's also assumed that anything good that happens to a Green Party is explained because the party must have professionalized that aspect of itself in some way. Now, what this effectively means is that the Greens outdistance third wayers, conservatives, the various other, um, what we might call um, uh, the various other ideologies in embracing what I would argue is the essence of progressivism. So the, the essence of progressivism is this idea that we should live in a technocratic state. Gov decisions should be made by experts. And that the triumph of the age of reason is not a reasonable public square. It is the substitution of that public square with technocracy itself. So um, uh, Sue Hamill, longtime uh, Surrey NDP party boss, uh, explained that in her progressive vision of the NDP, um, there would never be nomination meetings again because the vetting committee would simply interview the most qualified candidates for the position of MLA and hire them based on merit. Uh, that, uh, that we can really actually start getting rid of the messiness of democracy uh, if we fully embrace um, this, this progressive idea and the fact that the master term in progressivism is professionalization tells us where we're going. One of the areas where the Greens started doing quite well in candidate recruitment um, was of, uh, of people in STEM at this time. Uh, it had very much been, uh, the party had very much been a party of people with social science and humanities degrees. And um, we see uh, a lot of the naive enthusiasm that STEM folks sometimes have for technocracy, um, inspiring people into the Green Party. That the Green Party had found its discourse that if we were, that we're gonna make evidence-based decisions using science and expertise. And so we're not left, we're not right, because we are evidence-based, we are science-based. And um, that, uh, you know, and certainly 
that was a that swelled enthusiasm for the Greens. Um, in Prince Edward Island in British Columbia, where we have these exceptional cases of green success, there are a number of other ingredients. Uh, one, of course, is leadership. That Andrew Weaver, the climate scientist in a tie with the English accent that always gets a few extra votes on Vancouver Island, uh, you know, men lurking in shrubbery for decades, polishing their particular local English accent to bust it out at just the right time to impress a crowd. Uh, Andrew Weaver had that going for him, but he was also Dr. Weaver. Just like in Prince Edward Island, it was Dr. Peter Bevan Baker. In this case, you know, and uh, apparently as leader of the opposition, he remains the premier's dentist. Uh, so the, um, so there is this, um, there's a medical personnel shortage. That's why the NDP lost their one seat there. Local riding people in the riding voted to defeat this guy they quite liked because uh, he wasn't running his medical practice uh, while he was in the legislature. So uh, anyway, what, we, what we've got though is um, where the Greens do best is by essentially showing themselves to be the vanguard of the new progress. That if people still believe in the progress myth in the 21st century, that the Greens in various ways can capture that symbolically. And it's interesting, right? The, these folks in STEM who are in the Greens, they're not thinking at a symbolic level, but there's an intuition there that is capturing through symbols, the, uh, they're tapping into a symbolic vocabulary that people go, oh, that's very professional, that's very progressive, that's very advanced. Um, those are the, the things that, um, you know, inspire Greens. Now, of course, this fundamentally alters the party's understanding of its relationship to authority. This is um, uh, that like every other party that, um, you know, decided to stick with progressivism when the wheels started falling off, the Greens naturally develop an antipathy towards populists and populism. Uh, it's harder to put into their uh, their discourse. Oh, that's great. So Peter also, Peter Bevan Baker also has an accent from the other side of the Atlantic, but it's even better for Canadians. It's Scottish, given that the Scots were left to run the empire here after that damning report about the American War of Independence was received in Whitehall. So uh, yes. Never let Englishmen run English colonies. They might be convinced to use their rights as Englishmen. We need to send other colonized people to run English colonies. Uh, so um, hence the accent that we think we're doing when we do an Indian accent actually being a Welsh accent. Uh, so there's this wonderful accent politics of like progressive pageantry. Uh, there's a progressive pageantry to the way the Greens capitalize on this new discourse. Um, and what they also do, which is especially ironic in Prince Edward Island, given how often the Liberal Party of Prince Edward Island has run it, they tap into uh, what I would call 
cultural liberalism. Um, this is the idea, it's a way, it's a, it's a further manifestation of a technocratic noblesse oblige. This idea that you perform your success in capitalism by showing that you're above the fray, that you don't really care that much, you're not that attached to superficial political outcomes, and you're not attached to politics as a material issue for you. You're going to be fine no matter who's elected. You're still moving up the tenure track. Your stock portfolio is very diversified. Um, you, you know, worst case scenario, you lose one of the houses. So there's this kind of patrician cultural liberalism where it's like, well, we are okay, and we're going to show how okay we are by not getting desperate at this election, but instead looking above the fray and looking for the best possible person to do this job. Now, this had been the way the Liberal Party of British Columbia expressed itself and described itself from 1953 to 1993. David Anderson, Pat McGeer, all of those old blue blood patrician liberals we remember in British Columbia who said, you know what, this, this politics is a spoils system, uh, but we're, we're above all that. We will rationally order government and the CCF and social credit on either side going, no, this is a populist spoils system. This is about your economic choices mattering and affecting your lives. We represent you. Now, what that meant was that the Liberal Party of British Columbia between 1953 and 1993, when capital had to borrow it for another task, um, had um, held the following ridings. Oak Bay Gordon Head, West Vancouver Garibaldi, West Vancouver Capilano, Vancouver Point Grey. Those were the seats they could take. They were the highest income seats in the province, and they were so high income that it was unseemly to vote for the Social Credit Party, this bunch of rubes and used car dealers. No, no, the only way to express the rationality of your politics was to vote for the party you knew would come third and have some very erudite people in the legislative debate all with some kind of advanced degree. Now, one of the many cruel jokes that has been played on Prince Edward Island is that Prince Edward Island, although it's full of people who are cultural liberals, who are patrician liberals, it could never afford to have a lib them take over the Liberal Party. Both political parties in Prince Edward Island are old school spoils parties. And you're like making these bets about who's gonna get you the thing you need in your town. Is the road gonna be repaved in the next five years? Are we gonna be the ones who lose the hospital? Consequently, liberal and conservative politics in PEI are both so sullied with materiality that a true patrician cultural liberal has to really look at the national scene and recognize that PEI is in this fallen state until Peter Bevan Baker, until the new PEI Greens. Here was a pre-existing market pent up for 130 years 
dying for a party. They could get a few seats. It almost looked like that party was going to get too many seats and it had to stop campaigning for the last five days of the election for fear that it might inadvertently form government and be unable to serve its voters by being so sullied with the material world of actually governing Prince Edward Island. Um, what we really see with, um, uh, and we see the same kind of relationship to authority with Andrew Weaver. When Andrew Weaver is first elected to the BC legislature, he votes in favor of all the government bills, even though they increase fracking, fossil fuel subsidies, all these things. Because, you know, it's just more important to have perspective here. The vote wasn't really going to change anything. So it's really about having a collegial conversation with people. Um, this, uh, so I, I, I'm indebted to Stan Lee, the creator of Spider-Man for really uncovering what I would say is the true motto of the Canadian Greens. With no power comes no responsibility. And uh, this, has, this has produced some very odd politics. But I would note that in provinces where the Greens couldn't form this coalition with patrician cultural liberals, um, the, uh, they fail, right? They can't, they can't stack enough votes together to get anywhere in most Canadian provinces, right? They come close in one riding in Manitoba. Uh, they're annihilated in Alberta. Victor Lau is repeatedly called back out of retirement to put the Saskatchewan Greens back together. Um, but of course, Victor is operating under very adverse conditions because of the massive shift in rural public opinion in Anglo America on a whole bunch of issues that. Uh, um, and in Ontario, the limited success the Greens have had winning the riding of wealth, you'll see it has a very similar profile to Vancouver Point Grey or Oak Bay Gordon Head, right? It's a riding anchored by a university. And when people describe the UK Liberal Party that has a similar drift into irrelevance, when it describes that, that, that kind of patrician liberal uh, affect, it refers to their base as university towns of the Celtic fringe. Uh, and that's very much where the Greens have succeeded in Canada. It has been in producing that alloy that they've never been able to do in the UK of fusing an old fashioned liberal party with um, this new way of articulating um, this position above the fray. And of course, if one can talk about voting based on the interests of one's children or even, even one's grandchildren, that again, it, it epitomizes that discourse where I'm so okay, I don't need to vote for me. Now, at the federal level, it's been interesting to watch um, Elizabeth May uh, not go in that direction. Go to in that direction, I would say, in a half-hearted manner. 
Um, although Elizabeth May's long-term political allegiances indicate that she's a traditional sort uh, that she's up for progr progressivism, professionalization, technocracy. The reality is that her kind of green politics is still connected to her candidacy for the small party at the beginning of all this. That there's a way in which um, there's an accommodation with eccentricity and with heterodoxy that a 20th century patrician liberal party or 20th century green party would have been very much at home with. But there's a sense of the uncanny with Elizabeth May that the NDP talks about her position on abortion, not because just because I believe they're empirically correct and she is trying and she will side with a stealth ban on abortion given the chance. It's also true that it works. It makes people insecure. It's like Elizabeth May is such a bizarre mixture of beliefs and connections. I can't actually predict what she thinks about everything. I, I find I find her crucifix unnerving, right? There's um, there are all of these uh, these sort of elements of that, and I would argue that has kept the Green Party of Canada culturally open in ways that, whether they've succeeded or failed, provincial Green Parties have mostly picked where they are culturally and who is interested in joining them and who is not. The last Green Party of Canada leadership race uh, really is demonstrative of the degree to which different social movements out there think the party is still up for grabs. That um, the Green Party of Canada is an unfinished work. And at this point, I'll pivot to the United States where we have a far more extreme version of that. What we have in the United States was, of course, all of this work by the Rainbow Coalition and Ralph Nader to uh, legitimate the, uh, uh, the, green, uh, the Greens and all of this funding that flowed from that. But what I, um, what I think, um, but something rather different happened. The amount of infrastructure that it takes to run a federal party in the United States is considerable. You need a lot of people in a lot of places and a lot of money at different times. And you need volunteers who can collect lots of signatures for all kinds of different things. It's an enormous hassle. If you can keep up a certain level of effort, you can hold your party in place. If you slip below that, parts of your party start falling off. And this involves you suddenly are deregistered in a state, or you lose uh, a subsidy from a vote threshold you didn't meet a second time. You failed to get enough signatures for the state treasurer position, and that was the only statewide office you were running for. Now you've got to get all your signatures at local office. There are so many quantum effects within a US political party 
that, uh, and it's so difficult to push through to get all of the various benefits of being a US political party that discarded and abandoned political parties are a thing worth competing over. And it's not just Ralph Nader and the Greens that this story is about. This is also Ross Perot and the Reform Party. That at the beginning of the 21st century, the Bush Gore and Bush Kerry elections had effectively disciplined nearly the entire voting population back into the two major parties. Everything was such a nail biter. Everything was so consequential. Um, the um, you know all kinds of weirdos who hadn't been involved in a mainstream party in decades suddenly turned up to poll captain for John Kerry in Ohio in 04, even though no one understood what his position on the war even was. Um, what this meant was that there was really an insufficient number of personnel at, in play to possibly keep these parties going. And so what we see with the US Reform Party is um, its collapse under Pat Buchanan, and then a series of reform presidential candidates um, from various essentially random movements seizing control of this collapsing thing. Now the Greens had a little bit more in the way of grassroots organization and committed support. During all those years of having the committees of correspondence and this, this non-party in the US, uh, there was naturally um, a certain floor in the number of greens in a jurisdiction. There might be a, a lower ceiling, but there was also a higher floor compared to the Reform Party and Pat Buchanan. Uh, and then later, of course, the success of reform, it looked like reform was going to be saved by Jesse Ventura uh, when uh, he accidentally became uh, governor. And, um, but in fact, it accelerated its decline. Ventura was incapable of leading the National Party and became increasingly bizarre and eccentric as his time in office wound down and he found he couldn't work with the legislature and began initially, right, he'd been Jesse the Body Ventura. It had been funny. But when he began referring to himself as Jesse the Mind Ventura, it just seemed a bit sad. The case of the Greens is, of course, different. What we see is the party growing in attractiveness to eccentric left sectarians and competing armies of those eccentric left sectarians fighting for the nomination. Roseanne Barr has lost the Green Party nomination twice. I believe she was the runner up on two separate occasions. Um, and Cynthia McKinney um, and Jill Stein are emblematic of this. McKinney and Stein are successful because, although McKinney probably does have some sort of paranoid pathology, I don't think Jill Stein is in any way herself paranoid. But Cynthia McKinney, her being thrown out of the Democrats, her association with the truther movement and the like, what McKinney is able to do for the Greens 
is sort of what David Icke did for conspiracy theory or what Alex Jones did for conspiracy theory. These are figures who are able to put social movements that were paranoid about one or two particular things or which partook of what uh, Richard Hofstadter termed the paranoid style in American politics and were able to fuse these different paranoias into a unified coalition. Um, so we see beginning with, um, you know, Nader's abandonment of the Greens. Um, these presidential candidacies by individuals who, you know, they've, um, they've got, uh, they've got a truther constituency. They've of course got an environmental constituency. They've got an anti-war constituency. And then there are also a lot of these candidacies. We see this also with Tulsi Gabbard in the Democrats. They work well with entryists from fascists for fascist movements from elsewhere. So um, if you're a Putin fan, if you're an Assad fan, if you're a Modi fan, um, uh, these kinds of spaces are friendly that the left is so identitarian at this point, if you're associated with a patriotic movement from somewhere else in the world, they're not going to see the politics of that movement. They're simply going to see the brown skin of a, uh, of a group of uh, visible minorities. And this, uh, and so how can that be bad? How can, how can Tulsi Gabbard being an ally of Narendra Modi, how could that hurt anybody? Well, a number of ways actually, but of course this is an area of special amnesia for Anglo-Americans because we had entryist fascist movements from Mexico in our cities when Plutarco Callas was running Mexico. And we suspected that there were these entryist movements that backed the Japanese dictatorship in the 30s. And so internment. And because internment was a mistake, we're actually quite afraid of suggesting that there might be social movements aligned with a foreign power, uh, an authoritarian foreign power meddling in our politics. We, because that, that would be racist to think that, because that's what we thought when we interned the Japanese. Um, that's, uh, that's also what we thought when the US expelled a bunch of Mexicans in the 20s. Only the US was actually empirically right uh, in that instance. They might not have been morally right to expel them just because they were aligned with a hostile foreign power, but they were. Their, uh, the Caista movement uh, was doing street violence. So the U.S. doesn't want to remember, U.S. progressives don't want to think about the past in these zesty, complex ways. There are these foreign dictator fan clubs. And if you put them together with, you know, some people who are paranoid about vaccines and, uh, you know, maybe get the bleach church in there, you can cobble together enough volunteers to keep the show on the road, to keep this husk of a party in place. And I would argue that um, eventually the small number of, that eventually realizing 
how little had been achieved in the Obama presidency on any meaningful front, that enough sort of left-wing or green Democrats wandered back into the greens to finally say, all right, that's about enough. This is getting very embarrassing. Uh, we just can't have any more Eva Bartlett endorsements. Uh, this, is, uh, this is not going to work out. And so it's, it was interesting looking at Howie Hawkins seeking the green nomination for 2020, winning it, um, looking at some support from uh, organized labor starting to come back into the party again. I think we're starting to see an end of this fairly ugly paranoid interregnum uh, in the US Greens and the slow rebuilding of Ralph Nader's old base. Um, and I think that's probably only going to accelerate um, as the Sanders movement um, loses its momentum. It's going to shed voters. A bunch of them will be shed to this new People's Party that Paula Jean Swearingen is putting together. But, um, and some of them will be lost to the two different socialist parties representing the different elected socialists in uh, the US. And I imagine, but the Greens actually have the best and most national infrastructure in place still. They have ballot access, they have a brand. <clears throat> and so I think the US Greens will uh, stagger to their feet as something resembling a more conventional European style Green Party. Um, well, I think uh, you're right, Jonathan, there was a poll factor too. I think the QAnon shaman almost certainly voted for Jill Stein before he voted for Donald Trump. Uh, so I think you, you make a good point there. The paranoid style did absolutely pull away Things that Jill Stein said were international, possibly Jewish conspiracies in 2012 um, was a bit more of a problem when Donald Trump really stole all of that rhetoric about uh, um, a certain level of implied anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. So yeah, there's no doubt that the Trump, and we've got to remember that in a lot of states where both parties are pro-development, large numbers of conservationists um, were in the Trump movement because of um, the, its affiliation with Right to Repair and these other sort of green homesteader types of uh, social movement politics, also obviously bleeding over into eco-survivalism. But, um, the situation in, uh, but sort of looking at um, back at Canada, I think we really see that the Greens came up seemingly unconsciously with a formula that has served them very well. Um, I think, and I think we will see the logic of that continue to obtain in other provinces right? The Alberta Greens are much better off uh, amalgamating with um, the Alberta Liberals that are now about the same size uh, at this point. Um, 
Yes, uh, exactly. There we go. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, there's the similar reverse conspiracy problem comparing Iran in 1980 to Russia in uh, 2016. But uh, leaving uh, leaving the Trump tokenism to the side. So as much as I did sign up to um, work with Dmitry Leskaris and I, uh, you know, joined the party uh to sort of back these vaguely left green candidates. Um, it always struck me as a long shot. It strikes me that the Greens, um, that an attempt to make the Greens left or the left green, um, it keeps fizzling out. And when it succeeds, it succeeds because of codified specific agreements with budgets behind them, right? Whenever we see Greens and the left cooperate, um, and I, it's not just, you know, it, it's, it tends to be in these elite-led coalitions, whether that's the Horgan government or uh, whether that's, um, you know, the Fischer-Schroeder governments in Germany, the uh, uh, French governments, or whether we see it in, um, you know, electoral deals like the uh, the Red Green Alliances in BC in 99. Um, it does seem that um, the idea of a broadly left green party that has a base that is tolerated by the green party base, I don't think we can find an example of that. I think we can find a lot of aspiration to that. But the only real example we have is sitting there in Quebec, demonstrating, uh, I think, the degree to which we really are in a special Anglospheric kind of green politics. Uh, certainly, we see that with the Greens in coalition with Labour in Australia. Um, those grassroots red-green formations that gave birth to the parties in Tasmania and New Zealand, um, to a degree, we've really moved on from that, that a lot of that constituency is either lost or imaginary at this point. So, um, and I think that this all has to do with the Greens' failure to form any significant ideology after the 1980s. Uh, I wanna take the next class to talk that through. I think the next class is our final episode. Uh, but um, it strikes me that if we're to try and analyze um, this um, pretty consistent trend throughout the English speaking world, um we have to uh, we have to go back to these foundational stages because in, whether we're just looking at the US and Canada or whether we're looking at the sort of broader um Australia, New Zealand, add England to the list, um we see surprisingly consistent patterns. We know that there are different people involved. We know there are sort of temporary deviations from these patterns, but we have to consider the possibility that even if James Marshall can't define the term he's using or explain why it's good, 
that James Marshall is right, that there is some kind of dance green politics is doing with the forces of professionalization in our politics. And we have to understand, right, that the opposite of a professional is an amateur, right? Professionalization is about evacuating the vast majority from politics. It's about getting rid of the amateurs and leaving it to the professionals. And uh, that is increasingly progressivism is returning to its roots and becoming that as a social movement ideology. And it's opposed by an increasingly populist conservative ideology um, whose slogan, like it or not, is do your research. What does it tell us that uh, telling regular folks they can look things up and figure things out has become a signal for right-wing conspiracism and not like the basis of the enlightenment? <clears throat> so um, naturally, I think the, uh, what's happening in green politics is tied to all of that, and we'll visit that on Monday. But now, as this is the um, one of the sort of three episodes about the present I was in, uh, very interested in questions, comments from everybody. All right, well, uh, Jonathan, go ahead. I just want to introduce uh, my friend and landlord, Steve, who is a STEM person who is a long-standing member of the Green Party. Unlike ah, me. Hello. hello. Good to meet you. So, um, uh, yeah, did that ring true for my dating of the, uh, the STEM uh, flow into the Greens? I, I think I may have missed some of the beginning. Oh, okay. I was suggesting it was about 15 years ago that we see this big push of the Greens sort of professional qualifications changing and all these STEM folks getting involved. Right. Yeah, no, I, uh, I certainly uh, can sense um, that side of the sort of spirit of the Greens, I, I think I would say. Yeah, because it certainly wasn't there when I was there. It's uh, it's it's odd looking at you know your your normative green now is a very different looking uh, sort of person than uh, uh, than we had uh, a generation ago. Mark, you are making taking time for this thing specifically today. Is there anything you wanted to throw out there before? Uh, um, the, there we go. Hey, yeah, no, I'm happy to, to pop on for a little bit, Stuart. I, I, if, if anything, I, I might have missed some of your comments on, on PEI. But yeah, sort of part of uh, the, the reason I wanted to jump on here is, is to see sort of what you had said about PEI. Um, and maybe I'll preface it by saying what Islanders are always going to say about uh, people not from PEI observing and commenting on PEI politics is <laughs> you got to say what you or you got to obviously take what you off-islander saying there with a grain of salt because, you know, you don't know it, right? Um, but, yeah, we but have yeah, not lived I, it. I, I, I do feel like in some ways you, you captured some of the issues uh, here, and, you know, I do wish I had had the opportunity to pop in on, on Monday uh, to hear more maybe what, what you might have said. 
Um, but in some ways, I feel like maybe the situation here with the Greens and Peter, um, I, I don't know if you touched on it, but I'd heard, and I feel like there's always been a strain in, in the Greens I've met of almost, uh, you know, the millenarianism view of green politics that just the scales are going to fall off everybody's eyes and everybody will vote green. Yes. And in some ways, I think the, the problem here is that, is that Peter um, subscribes to maybe the idea of the greens just getting more professional and the, oh, the idea that everybody will just eventually vote green uh, when maybe in some ways he had just a really specific confluence of circumstances here that, that in some ways was never going to be here for him because yeah. he didn't have the organization and the, uh, the team who could get him 14 MLAs elected. And sadly, in a real way, he was just riding a wave that had largely been organized for him by a multi-partisan team of proportional representation advocates. And then he was just handed that wave by a arrogant and dumbass liberal premier, frankly. You know? Yeah, no, I think, I mean, that, that is my primary explanation is that ultimately what people, what most voters reduce yes to proportional representation to is yes to putting greens in my legislature, that those things are conflated in the minds of voters, especially the more referendum campaigns they've gone through. So that alters the ceiling, but then the decision not to honor the results of one of the referenda and how bad that played that part i did not talk about and you're right that's an important detail which really further will. which further transferred votes from the yes side to the green party oh 100 and indeed you know some of the 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 issue was that the and i think this is fair the dummies who peter bevin baker let run uh, the, the final proportional representation campaign were so stupid as to allow a lot of voters to see the answer as being we're voting yes to Greens. When if the answer was, are we voting yes to make Prince Edward Island democracy better? Are we making it better to institutionalize all these things that had Peter Ben Baker had been smart enough to associate himself with personally and now very presciently for the short and medium term of the PEI Greens is that is that uh, now um, Premier Dennis King has the good sense to associate himself with all of these things that PR is associated with and are, are very savvy electorate. Like anyone who tells you the PR electorate is not savvy is a, you know, they're a dumbass. Like we want to have the largest electorate in Canada that doesn't read, but it doesn't mean they're stupid about politics, you know? In fact, many of them are very, very savvy. They are very connected to their, their political community and very knowledgeable about what's going on. And yeah, in, in a certain way, Dennis King will remain our premier and a bunch of green MLAs will lose because Dennis King, while well, he will never use a stitch of political capital in bringing in proportional representation here, he has the good sense to never crap on it, to talk about all the wonderful things that the Greens will have brought to PEI politics during his premiership and he'll win you know 24 or 25 uh, seats in our next election and you know we'll see what happens with with this energy that that peter bevan baker kind of caught in the electorate because you know it will probably dissipate when there's one or two of them with their 30 percent of the vote 
Well, what's interesting, though, is if you look at um, if you look historically at um, parties that I think like Bevan Baker's Greens have successfully done patrician above the fray liberalism, that is actually your sweet spot. You don't want too many seats. Too many seats is a hassle. You don't want more that that many. So the liberal Democrats in the UK, um, the old BC liberals, the current BC Greens, um, there's actually trouble if you're on some kind of growth path because your goal is not to enter into like the profane and sullied world of governing. Um, your goal is, is to perform this other thing. And so I think two seats would suit them very well. You want like one in Charlottetown, one in Summerside, they can probably ditch the rest and still produce the same effects. And of course the Greens will perform this hyper collegiality in doing this, right? You think of all the, of all of the photo ops that Weaver, Andrew Weaver did with Christy Clark and then just switched to doing photo ops with John Horgan um, because he's just, he's associated with power. He's like the little angel on the shoulder of the person who actually runs the place. Yeah. And that's what's effectively performed in that politics. And I, I think um, Peter could go to his grave being the little angel on the shoulder of whoever the premier is. The NDP, oh, pardon me, not the NDP, it's PEI, but the uh, the Tories, the Liberals, he could play that role and very respectful and kind things would be said about him. Uh, and, you know, really it's Asquith, right, who sets this as a cultural archetype. Uh, watching Asquith lose, he's right, he's the last Liberal Prime Minister of the UK. And his party splits, right? They become the, the a Churchill and David Lloyd George form a separate faction and it grinds down into chaos. But the last years Asquith is in parliament, he's just like quoting literature and drinking, wandering around doing this thing. And he being an MP is almost secondary to the parliamentary performance he's putting on. And I think he set that as the cultural tone by the, um, uh, and it's an archetype that we somehow know well enough subconsciously in the English speaking world that people will play to it and they'll get success. So, um, sorry, isn't what the most MPs ever? Um. Drinking and quoting literature. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, that yes. Was, well, that was. Uh, the Oxford Union let, lets you do. Yes. And Asquith is like when all that fell apart, right? And they had to put up with these uh, plebeians who, even if they were Von Dues, they, 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 were, they were still busy selling out the working class that didn't make them upper class. So that dream ends right with Asquith, the last of that, uh, that species. And then pretty soon everybody has to ditch it. You end up with, you know, Margaret Thatcher not being funny at all. And uh, so, yeah, I, and I, I think, you know, it probably says something important about the US Greens that because they don't come out of that tradition that that archetype is not a tool available 
to an American green candidate. That um, there's no sort of Yankee nabob performance that can be an equivalent of that in a presidential election. Maybe if you get a Kennedy, but if you have to get a Kennedy, you're kind of cheating. Um, in terms of the whole lack of a real, of, of a coherent philosophy, I just wanted to, which I think we can agree is true. Um, I, I wanted to quote Don, my, my partner who ran for yes. the Greens, but he always said they were the peace and jobs party because you can't <laughs> have peace and jobs, right? But that's what the Greens wanted. <laughs> No, I like that. No, mm -hmm. there are all kinds of folks where if, um, you know, uh, we, um, if there were more like them, right? There are all these individual green candidates who would do a great sales job, but that was because we welcomed eccentrics for a while. Um, there, um, the discourses would work brilliantly for the candidate, it would be totally non-portable. I, uh, I remember Alan Child uh, was one of my favorites from the 96 election uh, because, you know, he was dying of emphysema already. And so he um, was constantly smoking these small cigars. He was covered in ash and he made this sort of vehicular noise when he moved because of his lungs, which is a uh, wherever he went. And um Anyway, he had the time of his life. He was 71 years old. He knew it would be his last campaign. He was the founder of the Canadian Faculty Union and ended up right in Vavenby, the town he'd retired to. Um, at one point, um, he, some heckler had engaged him from the back of the hall. And um, he... Um, uh, the guy was talking about, you know, you don't care, you know, you don't know anything about cutting down trees. I've cut down more trees than you, young man, I'll wager. In fact, we got here right now. I've got my chainsaw in the back of the truck. We'll fire it up. We'll see who can cut a tree down faster. And uh, I mean, it was it was amazing watching like uh, this whole accumulated resume of competence and eccentricity being yeah. enacted on the yeah. stage. Yeah. He, uh, the best thing he said, I think the saddest, uh, because it, it spoke to what we were doing a little too honestly. He said, you know, Stuart, if this were a fair fight, I'd wipe the floor with these bastards. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, of course, one of the other green problems, knowing it's not a fair fight and then do, designing all of your policy and your, and your strategy on the basis that it is. Yes. Well, that's sort of a common failure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so um, uh, we other stuff about the uh, the twenty first century greens. I think we sort of managed to polish them off in uh, in an hour. Hey, yeah. If if, if I may, Stuart, I'd yeah, love to jump Mark, out for, for one more point. And yeah, and maybe this, and kind of now with the PEI greens, it it is something instructive uh, that I might want to add. And and you know, I've, I've discussed this with Gosha a minority of their caucus now for sure. 
is I, I just can't believe how they organized their legislative caucus and its staff. Every other uh, Prince Edward Island legislative caucus in its entire parliamentary history, I have some knowledge of this as my father, Gerard, was a true term member of the legislature here. They organized their legislative office to maybe do a little bit of opposition work when they're in opposition, but both in uh, government and opposition, it largely dispenses all sorts of various patronage, everything from jobs to various uh, aspects of provincial government programs, which MLAs have no influence on in nine provinces yet, which requires an MLA sign off in the tent. Um, so that's basically the job of the legislative support and PEI until the eight member PEI Greens caucus now, which has decided that that would sully their beautiful, perfect legislative work, which they shall do nothing. I, well, horrible Scottish accent. I won't do that. <laughs> that. You know, they shall do nothing but legislative work. And they have renounced all of their powers to provide their, their constituents with support, to which I'm sure now the government is figuring out ways to provide support to favored swing voters while letting them know that Greens don't care about their material needs. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, that's that's what they're up to these days. And, you know, I've advised my local MLAs that they may lose because of that, but they're just going to let Peter try otherwise. Well, but they, as I said, I don't think they need most of those seats and they don't really want them. And they certainly do not want to be in the spoils system. Like it or not, there's a paradox here. Um, if they participated in the spoils system and the way that everybody does in PEI, they would lose their cultural liberal vote. It would go back to the liberals. Mm -hmm. They are stuck in a double bind. If they participate in the spoils system, sure, sure. the whole way the of fusing that coalition that together is- They to don't want that vote. And, and honestly, in a real way, like it, it was never attached to the liberals in a way. And like, here's a thing that I'm happy to share with you. Mm -hmm. And it's publicly reported. The liberal party of Prince Edward Island, which- as part of a way of neutering the proportional representation movement, but thankfully helped along with Peter Bevins Baker's anti-union screeds. Oh, great. Uh, the PEI uh, Liberal Party, when they banned uh, funding for PR advocacy around our referendum period, mm -hmm. uh, literally banned it, banned it, banned political organizing and speech. Um, they also brought in wide-ranging political funding laws. And somehow, after they did that, they allowed very unpopular Premier Wade McLaughlin to run them in $200,000 debt. Last year, they were only $10,000 in the black, which included $40,000 in the wage subsidy. So I, I think the PEI Liberal Party is going bankrupt. Just, you know, by yeah, the by. I'm not saying it's being well managed. I'm just saying that the genius of Baker and Weaver is to, instead of continuing to try to make this red-green thing work based on continental Europe, they found coalition partners that they could pull into their party institutionally. And so those, um, but those, those partners need the party to be above the fray. They need them to be better liberals than any liberal has ever been because that's the thing the Greens are offering. They are the most progressive down this professionalization progress track. So it's amazing getting this evidence from on the ground and the evidence all looking 
pretty similar to the way I theorized the evidence was. I um, like getting this stuff on the ground, especially about them not doing the spoils work, not signing the papers. It's totally, I didn't even understand that the spoils system was that formal to the point where people are refusing to sign papers. Like it's a more dramatic version than the kind of insanity I, I had, I had anticipated. So I really, really appreciate the data. This is uh, this Marshall thesis may have some legs. <sighs> okay. Well, I think uh, we've had a good 71 minutes. Uh, we'll wrap up with could have beans and couldn't have beans uh, next week. And um, I'll uh, get caught up on these recordings as my morale improves. Anyway, thank you all. Hmm, that's interesting, I wonder what it was. Children play. Oh Lord, 